Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. The other thing that's very interesting to me about the reception I've had of men in fair play especially with one man who said to me, I'm willing to accept your female anger in the beginning of the book because the solution has been really helpful for me and my partner. Um, And I always say, thank you men for accepting my female anger. I have a lot of it. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer and you are listening to and or watching In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. And today I'm very excited because Someone is my guest who I am a fan of. This is her book, and it is earmarked and carefully <laughs> read. Okay, <Thank> you. <laughs> you there, and there she is. So this is Eve Rodsky, and her book is Fair Play, and the subtitle is A Game Changing Solution for When You Have Too Much to Do, and then parenthetically, and More Life to Live. And I think um, that. A friend of mine, Jose Zelstra, who has a nonprofit called um, something like the title of your book, Gender Fair, Fair. uh, introduced us because I was asking Ernie, um, how did we book you and who was the connection? And I think it was Jose. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. It was. Yeah, she thought we had um, compatible messages, Frank. So she wanted us to meet. Yeah, she's great. She's she's introduced me to some wonderful people. Um, the list is really long. She's seen, Jose sort of knows everybody. In the old days, you know, we called people who had all these connections, you'd say something like, well, you know, she has an amazing Rolodex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But these days, nobody would know what that is. So I don't know what the, <laughs> is there a comparable expression that you know? to say? No, I guess maybe connector, to? right? She's a good connector, but I agree with you. There's no, I still use the word Rolodex, but Me you too. Know, I remember yeah. that. I had one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got your book read and marked, and we will get to that. And um, it's wonderful that you have brought up this subject uh, in, in such a time frame. But I, I want to start off track a little bit um, and go to something that you talk about both in the book, but also in person sometimes, and that is your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, given that everything in this book is about uh, parenthood and career, and the balance of the two. And then your mother was was someone who you admire so greatly because she, against all odds, managed to do some wonderful things. Let's talk about your mom for a minute, where you grew up and what it is about her that you admire so much. I've read the book, but I want people to hear it from you. Well, thank you. What a fun question. Um, and if my mother is watching out there, so I'll make sure she sees this link after. Yeah. Uh, I, the book is dedicated to her um, because... I think uh, when you're a child, you know, the perspective, you you don't have a a perspective of um, 
really anything of how hard it is um, to raise children and try to have a career. And um, I just watched her do the best she could. But Frank, for me, it was um, growing up as a parental child. That's what psychologists would call me. Um, mm-hmm. It was the fact that my mother uh, was a single parent. My father had left her when um, she was pregnant with my brother. Um, I was three and my brother was zero. And she started a new life over in New York City. We were living in Virginia at the time. And I think for me, it was the idea of all I knew, my perspective of my mother was being a parental child, meaning that as a single parent holding all the cards, that's the metaphor of fair play, this idea that there is humanity in the chores and housework and the, you know, the the thousands of of unpaid labor things that we have to do every single day. Mm-hmm. She was holding on to all of those, but a lot of things were fl- slipping through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was starting at eight years old um, with our first eviction notice. I remember this, it was, I was in second grade. I remember the first eviction notice coming under our door and starting to create a system for my mother where I would put them in piles, our bills, and say, these are the ones priorities to have to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we wouldn't continue to be um, housing insecure. And that's what I remember. I remember telling her my brother couldn't read. I remember um, telling her I think he has autism and looking it up in the library. Um, so that's what I remember. I remember um, how hard it was for my mother to do everything because um, she didn't have a partner in the home to share um, the unpaid labor as well mm-hmm. as um, the breadwinning duties, really, really hard. What was she doing at that time when you were three years old to put a meal on the table? I mean, how was she earning her living and taking care of you guys? What was going on? It's a good question. Um, we we laugh because, uh, well, the first thing was um, when she divorced my father, it was moving back to New York and finding a rent-stabilized apartment. That was the most important thing is finding a place we could live that was affordable and it's hard to do that in Manhattan. So we did. We found a rent-stabilized apartment in Stuyvesant Town. We grew up on Avenue C and 14th Street. But my mother always tells the story of coming up from Virginia with a literal baby and a three-year-old in the back seat of the car. Uh, she says that she didn't remember if there were seatbelts. I was like, I don't know how you secured in a, a baby in the back seat of the car. But showing up at our door on Avenue C and 14th Street, and she remembers lugging out this giant suitcase. And then so someone tried to come to steal it. And so they, they came and picked up the suitcase, tried to run off with it. The second she just arrived in New York and it was too heavy. So they just put it down and kept on running. And so she just went and went and got our suitcase. But it was it was that type of it was not I think for her, it was getting us housing secure. She was a social worker, so she did not have um, a lot of disposable income. But we were in a rent stabilized apartment Um, But it was a hard time to grow up in New York City. The AIDS epidemic was raging. St. Vincent's Hospital right across 14th Street from from us. There were a lot of, um, there was a huge methadone clinic on our corner. So I kept having nightmares about zombies because I thought um, heroin addicts look like zombies. How how old were you then having those nightmares? Four, four or five years old. And you remember them? A hundred percent. Yeah. Speaking 100%. of which, what, what when your dad left, is he still alive somewhere? Do you yeah, know where he's he alive? Mm-hmm. Yeah, have yeah. You ever had any contact with him? Yeah, he he came back into our lives. Um, what he did was 
he, um, we never went to restaurants. I mean, I think now how privileged it is I get to enjoy restaurants, but growing up, um, so that was exciting. He would come on Wednesday nights sometimes to take us to KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, on on 14th Street and 2nd Avenue for those New Yorkers who are listening. Sure, I think sure. it's still there. But that's that's he came to um, to take us to Kentucky Fried Chicken, and sometimes he would show up, and sometimes sometimes he didn't. Did he ever sort of double back at a later date in your life and talk to you uh, with whatever modicum of honesty he could muster about why? He had left and any sense of being sorry uh, or apologizing to you for putting you in that jam, let alone to your mom, which I guess would be a different conversation. I'm just wondering if you ever had that conversation with him. Well, he actually just came out from my son's bar mitzvah. So it was nice. I got to talk to him a little bit about that. And I think what I realize about most people and Frank, from your work, I'm sure you feel this way too, is that, you know, part of healing to me is just accepting um, you know, people for sure. you know, limitations that they, they have, but also not, um, being able to still love through mm. those limitations. And it doesn't mean that I don't feel sad or especially my, I think for me, um, I was the firstborn. I was able to, the parental child in me really helped me in terms of my grit and resilience. Mm. I think that the, the hardest thing for me is, my brother, my brother um, was just a product of neglect, um, given all the chaos around his birth. And so he he did not fare as well. Well, and he lives still in Stuyvesant in town. Um, my mother and I both support him. And um, it's it's I, I think he could have had a different life if. And so I think my father, that's what he recognizes. I think he recognizes that if he had been in our life, the legacy of my brother could have looked different. And I think it's funny. The other thing that's very interesting to me about the reception I've had of men in fair play, especially with one man who said to me, well, I I appreciate your female anger. I'm willing to accept your female anger in the beginning of the book because the solution has been really helpful for me and my partner. Um, And I always say, thank you men for accepting my female anger. I have a lot of it, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, I believe in solutions. And what I see for men is so many men I interviewed for fair play said to me, um, you know, they wish they had got it right the first time that a lot of men who are in second families who do more unpaid labor, they're the ones in carpool lines, even if they're more successful, they recognize that those spaces in between, whether it's picking your kid up from basketball practice, whether it's teaching them to ride a bike, whether it's teaching them to tie a shoe, whether it's going on a grocery run, whether it's teach, you know, teaching them how to make a basic meal, um, do laundry before college. Those things really matter to a man's legacy. And that's what I think my father and I, that's what we talked about when he came out here last month for my son's bar mitzvah. Hmm. Speaking of which, talking about a bar mitzvah and the fact that you grew up in a Jewish household. Were both of your parents Jewish or your mom only, or how did that work out? Yeah. So the, the interesting part that I never really get to talk about, which I think is fascinating back to my mother hmm. is that she was the first generation to sort of break a cycle um, because her parents are immigrant Syrian Jews. Um, and the Syrian Jews have a little bit of an interesting history because they're newer 
immigrants than some of the Ashkenazi Jews who have been around for multiple generations in America. And the newer um, Jews still had the mentality of many immigrant Jewish families, which is women are meant to get married um, young to older men. That that is was sort of the message my mother heard um, in the Syrian community. A lot of 17, 16, 17-year-old girls were married off to 30, 40-year-old men. Sure. Um, and uh and education was not prioritized. But her she and her sister both ended up with PhDs. Um, they're both um highly educated, and um, but her family is still extremely Orthodox, uh, black hat Jews. Yeah. But, but so, so if you think about unorthodox or if anybody's out there has watched some of these new shows like Shtetl, um, it looked a lot like that for my mother's family and it still does. And were but, they in, where, where were they at the time? Where did um, she grow up? Uh, she, uh, Brooklyn. Uh, oh, so she was in Brooklyn. Yeah. The real deal. <laughs> yeah. Avenue P and Kings sure, highway. Sure. Yeah. Like around, she went to Lafayette high school, but that's, that was her experience was a very interesting experience of being um, uh, part. You know, she was the first born. Her generation was the first generation born. And did your, your did your father come from a similar background? He did. His his family was um, it, back to our trauma. Um, I think for him, the uh, he came from a schizophrenic father um, and a mother who they lived on. Uh, welfare, um, one the only Jewish family in their community in Washington, D.C., and his twin brother, they were so poor that when his twin brother was um, born, uh, my grandfather kept saying, I hear two heartbeats, but they didn't really have prenatal care. And so my father came out first, but his brother had permanent brain damage, and he's been taking care of him his whole life. So I think an interesting through line of all of my relatives, including my mother, and then my father, who was more estranged and then came back later, was that there's always been these a lot of trauma and a lot of caretaking. Hmm. You know, all of our books, I think, you know, I write for a living. I've written uh, five novels and maybe 10 nonfiction books, and I guess started seriously writing in the late 1980s. But um, I find, you know, in looking back, especially the nonfiction work, you make a pretense when you're in the media talking when you're a bit younger. I'm pushing 70 now, so I, we're, we got a generational thing here. But after you've done it for a while, you realize that the pretense of neutrality is really bogus because everything you say is highly personal. And there's always a reason right. behind the reason. It always has to do with who you, where you come from. In other words, my books are only explicable if you know that I bailed from a right-wing evangelical background, Mm -hmm. then you understand what I'm pushing back against. And that's part of the story. And so I'm so interested in your story because the next question I'll ask you is, is um, a real question. It's, it's, um, (laughs) and I'm going to put it very weirdly. If you were my age, looking back at this book uh, with all that time that's passed and at that point, less attached to it, how would you see the personal drama and or family sort of epigenetic drama and trauma that you have inherited, even if it's not direct through that parental background, influencing the reason behind the reason behind the reason for you writing this book? That's a great question. I think I would say that all research is me search, right? That's what they say. Um, Mm -hmm. And 
for me, it was understanding Frank, you know, the, the person I was at 21, um, you know, the, the, the sort of lie I'd been sold was, you know, if you knew me, then I was going to be president and Senator because like the constitution doesn't really say you can't do both. And I can, you know, legislate during the day and senators are lazy because they, they adjourn at around 4 PM. I could do all my executive orders at night. Um, but I'm not going to give up my dream of being a Nick city dancer. So what if I flew air force one and, and into um, Madison square garden and I could dance the Saturday, 1230 game. I mean, the, the amount of energy and, and um, vitality I had in my dreams um, was was limitless. And then mm-hmm. 10 years later, um, you know, I was basically dead under the weight of the unpaid labor, childcare and housework of my family. How old were you when you got married? Just interject. I, I was uh, 28 and okay. I had and Zach at 31. And how old are your kids now? I have a 13 year old, a 10 year old and a five year old. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack. It has to be said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Yeah, that, that, that's I, I sort of put that together from the book, but- Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but anyway, so to go back to the story, the, the yeah. question here in terms of, okay, so we have that sort of driven personality, which by the way, reminds me of my mother, very much you're taught if she could be taught this could be a conversation with her and she came from china inland mission missionary parents uh fundamentalist christians who went to china were kicked out by the communists you know a whole different background and yet you know she had that kind of drive and was in 10 places at once and you know her her line was always other people take naps you know she (laughs) and sort of three hours of sleep a night and so on totally different human being completely different set of aspirations. Uh, but basically, I feel very close to you because talking to you um, is very much, I, I get it. Um, and she came from a background that had things. So let's go back to fair play a minute. So what's the, what's the story inside the story inside the story? You felt dead. Yeah. How does that relate to your background more than to being uh in childcare for unpaid. I mean, in other words, what's the, what's the real story there? Is it because of what you say it is on the page here, or is there something behind that? I'll give you an example from my own life. I got Jeannie pregnant when we were 17 and 18. I've been with her now for 52 years and we have five grandchildren. I do the childcare for three of them. I mean, I do it, not somebody else. I don't help out on the weekends. Uh, You know, as soon as I'm done this podcast, I go pick Nora up from school now. We're in, she's the youngest. So she's seven now at school. But for 13 years, I've taken care of them. I've canceled maybe 120 college speaking events so that I could be here to care for them for 13 years. And that's what I do. For me, it has nothing to do with balancing or trying to, you know, it, it, it's it's selfish. It's pleasure. I get a, a lot of satisfaction. It's very difficult. It doesn't mean I'm happy all the time, but that's me. 
But where that comes from, you know, is that some of my residual evangelical guilt trying to work itself out of what I should be doing? You know, you never know what the motive behind the motive is. So I'm asking you before we get into the yeah, book, yeah. how you see it. You know, if you were not you, you know, and you're looking at this book from a psychological or a neuropsychology point of view or an evolutionary point of view of female development and, and feminism, you know, where's this fit with you? I yeah, I think that's a great question. For me, um, the, the way I looked at it, when, if I look back at it, I think what I, the things I wrestle with, Frank, are really um, why I chose to speak to women. I think if I look back at the, 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 the thing behind the thing, it's the idea that um, I really believe unpacking how we're all complicit in our own oppression is really important to me. And I think that came because my mother's a professor of social justice and she would always you know, sit there with me and unpack privilege and who had more of it, who had less of it, um, what our privilege is, what, what, why are we on this earth? What are our values? Yeah, yeah. And so I think the through line through her life, um, which was the through line through her mother's life was sort of a life of justice, but also of unfulfilled dreams. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's the idea that I don't want any, I want to be the ghost of Christmas future. And I don't want anybody coming behind me to feel that they are a graveyard of unfulfilled dreams. And often women, especially become that because we are complicit in our own oppression. So where do I look if I look back on this book? I look at it as a place where I'm speaking. It was a hard decision to speak to women and say, you know, well, if it's really men who are not doing the childcare and housework, shouldn't I be writing to them? But I felt that from my research since 2010, one of the biggest findings of Fair Play, um, which I write about, as you know, is that as a society, we view and value men's time as if it's finite like diamonds. And we treat and we value women's time as if it's infinite like sand. And we know that in many cases, if women enter a male profession, salaries automatically go down. Sure. We say things to women like breastfeeding is free, even though it's really 1800 hours, uh, it's a full-time job. Sure. Um, but I think the hardest part for me, where do I see my book within the legacy is um, how women are, ourselves have, have internalized the messages of devaluing our own time mm. by, by pushing men out, by saying, you know, I'm a better multitasker, untrue, yeah, by yeah. saying things like in the time it takes me, Frank, to tell you what to do, I should do it myself. Mm -hmm. um, for saying things like, oh, yes, me and my mm -hmm. partner are both colorectal surgeons, but um, I can find the time. Um, so, yes, this is centering people, women who are married to men, because I think a lot of the hetero cisgender um, dynamics set up us up for failure. And so that's where I see my le the legacy of this book. It's looking at women and unpacking how we became complicit in our oppression. Let me just go to the book itself here for a minute, because, you know, when I read a book, especially since I write nonfiction myself, you know, you always try to say, what's this, what, what is the book about? And sooner or later, an author gets to a line or a paragraph, may not be the one they think represents mm -hmm. their book, but I sort of will pick a a word or two out of a nonfiction book that is about something with a point of view and say, okay, that's it. I'm, I've just hit the line that describes the book that had I been your editor would be on the cover. Okay. Mm. Um, and this is the one that would be on the cover. The first rule for fair play is for you and your partner to recognize that all time is created equal. I think that's one of the best lines I've read for a long time from anybody. 
But I also think that's your book because in a way that's the hinge that everything turns on in all directions, the lists, the cards, mm-hmm. the shared duty, the philosophy. And I would add this to that. And that is um, I would go further than what you've just said um, in terms of women and their own oppression or women and your own oppression, whatever it might be. And that is that I think that that of course the complicity is true of, of all genders and all people uh, in that we sort of fit into systems. You know, mm-hmm. I was thinking what you were talking about with your mom and Brooklyn. One of the more off the wall speaking engagements I had was, oh, 15 years ago. So after Terry Gross on Fresh Air had interviewed me for an hour about my, my memoir, Crazy Forgotten, it had become a bestseller. I got invited to New York to a, a group run by, uh, I would call progressive Jews, but maybe that's the wrong thing. It was entirely formed to help protect Jews growing up in strict Orthodox household, particularly females, escape. Mm, yeah. And some of them were in real danger, physical danger, and all of them had been cut off. These were young women who could barely speak English, had not been educated on purpose. Some of them married as young as 14. Correct. In New York City, which you think of as this Correct. sort of progressive bastion. and. They brought me to speak because my story told about my departure from that strict evangelical fundamentalist background. And they were trying to find speakers so that these young people wouldn't feel so alone. Look, there's other people going through similar things. You haven't been singled out. This is a global phenomena of of oppression from a fundamentalist religious point of view. So I I was stunned. And the the young people who were there were were sad and were so cut off. and it was one of those aha moments where you're saying, hey, I feel a bit less alone because they understand me and I understand them, but also just right under your own nose in this huge cosmopolitan city with a few blocks away, the New York Times office sitting there, you know, pontificating on life in general. And right in that city, you know, judges that have been paid off, children being married off, people in un- totally unhealthy relationships, and you might as well be in Saudi Arabia. And for me, the impact of that was big because I had never, I sort of knew about this theoretically. This is before these shows came on TV and so forth, but it stunned me. Well, absolutely. I think that, you know, back to the me search, right? I mean, I think watching my, all of my first cousins, I'm very close to my first cousins, but I was saying my mother and her sister were able to get out, but all of my first cousins are still, um, in a, a basically the same religion that you were. I mean, yeah, sure. whether it's fundamentalist, you know, evangelical, <clears throat> fundamentalist, um, black hat, um, Judaism, it's the same. It's this idea where I, I say to my cousins, you know, um, I, my Judaism is different than your Judaism because I don't believe in, in a Judaism where the only rules are to control women. And I think as you, that's what you see in the fundamental religions is that yes. most of the rules are um, around controlling women, their behavior, what they wear, what their hair looks like, um, in the guise of modesty and 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 God. And so it's it's really hard for me. And so I think the idea is that you know all like you said, whatever system you're in, mm-hmm. whether it's you know through uh, the lens of God or just the lens of the assumptions in our society that women are supposed to be the primary caretakers. Um, and thank you, Frank, for 
taking care of your grandkids and bucking that trend. But I do think that we have a moral responsibility to continue to push back against these messages. Our societal legacy, our humanity is in our caregiving. And that means that we should invite everybody, including men into their full power in the home so that women can ultimately step out into their full power in the world. Yeah, and I would go further than that and just say, one of the things that I write about, um, you know, a project I've spent the last five and a half, six years on, got the cover sitting behind me. We're not going to talk about it because this is I'm talking about you and your book today. But um, <clears throat> at the end, I'll just mention the, yes. you know, the book I worked on. But the fact of the matter is one of the things that I have found in the research I did, by the way, helped by all the women I thank at the front of the book who teach science at university level in places like Harvard and who helped me throughout. This book would not have been written if it had not been for the fact that my editorial board, as it were, all my advisors on this book were women, by the way. And that, that it just happens to be because that's where my circle of friends were. And I started sending them the manuscript about, oh, four and a half years ago, particularly Myrna Paris Sheldon, who teaches uh, both women's studies and a science subject. She's an amazing woman. Um, and Myrna started kindly and generously sending me notes back. And she kept telling me, yeah, but you got to read this. You got to read this. So anyway, from a lay person's point of view, my reading really opened some doors for me. And one of them that I want to throw out that um, you don't cover in your book, but I think that um, you're probably aware of, is that this idea that the women are somehow the nurturers and the, and the caregivers and men are by nature not, that you see running through these fundamentalist religions, really doesn't come from our evolutionary history of right. hunter-gatherer communities because it actually does take a village and always did. No woman has ever been able to, I mean, I'm not talking about single mothers, but no woman can raise a child alone because she's feeding the baby who feeds the mother. There's always other people. There's cousins, there's aunts, there's villages, there's husbands, there's lovers, there's whomever. People, yes, yeah, school. Yeah, because yeah. babies are born with big brains. They develop two thirds outside of the uterus. All mothers would die if the brains were completely developed instead of just some in birth. Um, childhood is extremely long. Human, you know, childhood goes on for ages compared to other primates, let alone other mammals. Um, if you look, that. say, at the model of, yeah, if you look at the model of caregiving, I experienced not in my home, I'm not talking about, but in the village I grew up in Switzerland, which was in the 1950s and early 60s, but could have been 1845. I mean, you know, in terms of the social structure, there was no division of labor between male and females. We understand normal now. There, the men and the women were out in the fields bringing in the hay when that was the season. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was usually an elderly couple up in the shade of a big old beech tree taking care of a toddler. Right. Grandparents were around. There was an intergenerational community. Nobody was moving very far away. So there was always a sister living down the road who would help. Um, there was a kind of a natural pattern to life. Now, that doesn't mean that all the men were thoroughly enlightened modern men with feminist ideals, but the actual system of life was much closer to the hunter-gatherer societies from which come. So my long point is this, and I want to ask you about this. It seems to me that not only women have been oppressed, men have been self-oppressing by giving themselves this non-caregiving, empathy-deprived life, wherein the real bottom line is what's good for corporate America and, and, and shareholders. 
and men have suffered. And I have a whole chapter in my book on why feminism is more of a gift to men in some ways than to women, because women have yet to really benefit because it's always been in this corporate model of how do I balance career and my life? But who's asking the bigger question? And that is, is this whole dedication to defining ourselves by career title good for men either? And I don't think it is. And I think my pleasure I get in caregiving and the significance I find in helping not only with kids, but doing the dishes. I do all the cooking in my house. This has nothing to do with feminism. This is just, I like cooking. And Jeannie and I have been friends for a long time and I help her because she's my friend, not because of, of you know, that I think it's, you know, it's not a contractual thing in that sense. But what I'm trying to say is, is I think men have missed out as much as women, although on the chart with women getting 83 cents instead of a dollar, the women's oppression is more measurable and it fits with a kind of a worldwide phenomena. But when it comes to joy, you know, why are four times more male police officers killing themselves by their own hand than dying in the line of service? Why is suicide up in the military? Why are all the loneliness charts through the roof? I think there's a bigger problem than balancing life and career for women. I think the problem is balancing life and career, period. Mm -hmm. And men have got it wrong. And the women are being oppressed because the men have it wrong. But the real answer is not to put a career ahead of everything. It's to really balance the structure and all fulfill our roles, caregivers. And that's a very personal kind of passionate viewpoint that I have lived out. Well, I love that so much because 100%, the system has not benefited any of us. I mean, I think that's, that's what it comes down to. You know, we, like you said, we have been sort of, you know, gaslit to, to, to think that, you know, men are breadwinners and they should be sitting in chairs for 15 hours. Men don't want that. I mean, there was an interesting study that came out that said 45% of men wish they could be stay at home parents, um, or or want to do more of what you're doing, Frank. Um, and you know, but then you also see the other side of things where you see there was a, you know, a Twitter debate because, a lot of these right-wing um, radio hosts kept, you know, saying paternity leave is for pussies. What are you going to do all day when you just sit around while your wife breastfeeds, right? So um, there's been very non-nuanced either-or conversations that feel like logical fallacies to me as a lawyer. When, as you said, that um, if you look back and recognize that the systems that we used to live in, like you said, mm-hmm. understood something fundamental about uh, human society, which is that our legacy is raising the next generation and is of productive work. And productive work means doing things in service of your household and family as a unit, then I think we'd be a lot better off. And I think for me, part of what, why I wrote Fair Play was not just to give people a new system for how to balance Um, their domestic life within the current system, as you said, which is already broken, but it's really a chance to assess why are we doing all these things in the first place? Mm -hmm. How much of what you're doing is really commodified wellness? Why is it that you're sitting there for 10 hours with a professional photographer taking a holiday card? Um, Are these things you even really want to be doing or did somehow society just tell you you should be doing them and then you're just adopting societal values? We need to take a pushback come up with our own value system with our partners and live that out as we raise our kids. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love your book for some reasons. I'm going to get more into the text in a second and read you some things I like so much, but one of the reasons I like it is just, it exists. 
you know, it's so great to have another gesture of like, it's time to rethink this. In other words, the book is important just because it's there um, and the need is so great. I think there are various avenues into this need. One is, you know, an old grandfather with less time ahead of him than behind him is telling people coming after me, listen, do not throw your life away defining yourself by position and money and achievement as Harvard Business School would define it. Right. I'm telling you right now, you know, it, this is not what will hold things together. My wife had a, she's fine, by the way, but my wife had a little heart attack about a month ago. And when she was coming out of anesthesia, having had a stent put in, I said to Jeannie, you know, were you scared? And Jeannie said, yeah, I was very nervous. But um, then I was overwhelmed by a sense of gratitude for the wonderful life I've had. Mm-hmm. Okay, now what the, the, the subtext of that, that you would not have known if you had been a nurse or the surgeon standing there is that Jeannie married what I'll call an asshole by divine right. That's me, because I was trained from birth to be a domineering male whose function under God was to make women obey you, and your wife was supposed to conform to that. And here Jeannie arrives as a teenager, sort of an original San Francisco hippie princess who'd seen the Rolling Stones live three times and the Beatles at the Fillmore West, in Switzerland on a high school graduation trip, knowing nothing about this, this guy gets her pregnant a few months later. We really were in love as teenage love goes. And her patience and her basically being Eve Rodsky Mm. and giving me things to do and to say, if you want to stay married, here are the conditions, changed me, not because she forced me, but because I really loved her. So she saved me by making me do the sort of stuff you talk about in your book. So this is really personal to me because what I heard when she said, I had a wonderful life, the subtext is, is I forgive you for all the shit that you put me through and thank God we're still together and it worked out, but it didn't work out by itself. It worked out because she was stubborn. It worked out because she stuck by her, her rights. It worked out because she wouldn't let me get away with the bullshit that my father got away with in the way he treated my mother, which is how I was raised seeing that. So your book really hit home for me because I was thinking, you know, um, Eve and Jeannie are two different people, but your toughness and the resolve you came out of your tough background with really comes through in the book. And it's funny, it's a voice I know because I'm married to that voice in a different context. So how I long think have you been married? 52 years. Amazing. How many yeah, I mean, it's amazing, but it's amazing only if you meet Jeannie, because if you had seen me through this arc, you know, evangelical celebrity out there as a sidekick to my father with Severett Coop and Ronald Reagan, borrowed Jerry Falwell's jet. You know, I keynote spoke twice at the Southern Baptist Convention blah, 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 on and on in my 20s and 30s. And then thank God, it was Jeannie who said to me, and then I I bailed. And then I tried to earn my living outside of it. What am I going to do? Talk about leaving the the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. I was in the same position. I knew nothing else. And so I cut a reel out of some documentaries I'd made for my father, which all had tragic consequences because they helped form the religious right that eventually became the Republican Party in its present form. And I went to Hollywood and they, there was enough creative stuff in there. So I got an agent. I made four feature films in Hollywood, very forgettable uh, B movies, but it was a living. And then Jeannie said, well, why, you know, why, why, aren't, why are you making these crappy scripts? Write the stories that you tell our children about growing up in this crazy mission. And then I wrote Portofino and it was a 
very successful novel at that time in 1990 and gave me permission to keep writing. But anyway, long story short, I get it. And I wanted to just go back to, to look at something here that I liked a lot. Uh, here. Consider the cost our society robbed of valuable productivity and top female leadership and talent as 43% of highly qualified women with children take a career detour. Now, it seems to me that, again, that I love the, the, the word career detour and the way you use it there. That, again, is one of those lines that describes, I guess, the passion behind the book in that, um, you know, what I don't understand is why it took the COVID epidemic to get enough men home along long enough to understand that they're, they're, the women they're with um, are full human beings because they started to experience something. The flip side of that is a lot of those guys say, now I don't want to go back to work because I've tasted this. And actually, I, I, I want to do a better job at sharing this with my partner, with my Absolutely. wife. So there's that's a- That's what I've seen. I've seen there was 153% increase in unpaid labor for women. Yeah. Um, I don't think we solved anything necessarily during the pandemic, but what I do think we did was make the invisible visible in a way that is like Pandora's box, Frank. And I don't think we can put it back yeah. in. I really don't. And I think that um, the beauty of, of the uncertainty, even with this new variant, is that we're not going back to normal. Right. That this is not, there, there's no back to normal. And as you said earlier, what man wants to go back to normal in this capitalist patriarchy that says that you are defined by your roles. I mean, women have yeah. always been defined by our roles, but that's why fair play became a love letter to men because I realized men were defined by their roles as well. And especially when you see all these, like I said, the, the relitigation of paid leave in this country and seeing sort of that, that, that right-wing part of the country that you're talking about say things like paternity leave is for pussies, men um, are not caregivers. Um, it's just bullshit. It it's bullshit, and, and it's bullshit from people who have been ramming family values. Right. <laughs> and actually, they've been ramming the oppression of women down right. all our throats right. with the, the heading, these are family values. Yeah. I mean, how dare they make fun of Pete Buttigieg because he wants to spend time with adopted uh, children. Yeah. By the way, there's a very interesting study that came out of Israel 25 years ago and has since been corroborated again and again in, in other studies that I cite um, in my book, and that is that they were using gay adoptive fathers yeah. mm -hmm. as a control for a study they were doing of young mothers with who were still breastfeeding children and they were taking saliva samples to do hormones and brain scans to try to nail down you know what what is love how 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 is it experienced by women with children and they they used adoptive fathers as a control to show how different it would be and they found exactly the same thing they couldn't tell the difference because an adoptive father that puts time in like Pete did with his kids is having the same brain reactions, the same readings, the same changes in hormonal uh, output in saliva and blood as a woman. The nurturer is there in evolution. It's part of neurobiology. And so these guys on the right are, are wrong doubly because they're wrong even on the basis of just science. And this Absolutely. we know this now. We didn't know this 50 years ago. We know it now. It, we don't think it, we know it. No, absolutely. And I, that researcher, Professor Ruth Feldman, um, it, one of my clients uh, 
is is funds her work. And so we've had the pleasure of getting to meet her and is exactly what you say, Frank. She is um she loves oxytocin. That's the that's the yes. hormone and oxytocin levels, like you said, they were hoping, not hoping, but they were expecting it to look different. Well, but I quote her at length and I've got the yeah. I've got the, the preamble to her first study and the second one and all the people who did the research and that she's one of my heroes and because she just I agree. Uh, same, same thing here. Glad, hey, listen, uh, you use your connection with her to give me an interview sometime. I, I will, to, I will. I'll put I you on. I want to talk to her. Because uh, that's a whole different thing. Speaking of which, I also want to talk about something else with you that I find very interesting. And that is some of your work, which is as a lawyer, you work with foundations and you you talk a lot about, um, you know, the kind of hidden sins of foundations and the fact that, you know, where they make mistakes, not so much in the book, but in some of your interviews and so on. Mm -hmm. I just want to get to that for a minute, but I want to ask another question. I want to make sure we have time for both. I want to talk to you about your work with foundations. I also want to ask a question and you don't have to go on at length, but when did you finish writing this book in relationship to COVID-19? It's a great, I'll answer that one first. Um, I finished writing in the beginning of 2018. Okay. Um, and the irony, Frank, was I got to go present fair play ideas at Davos. Um, so this was the World Economic Forum in March, sorry, January of 2020. And I remember sitting there uh, looking at all these male leaders saying, you know, we're just one crisis away from women's labor force participation rates tanking. Um, and nobody believing me because they're like, well, women are graduating at higher rates than men and women are in the labor force yeah. more than men. And aren't you just relitigating the 90 and I kept the 90s and I kept saying, just you wait. And what I and then I had a, a German politician come up to me, a progressive politician, a man who said that, um, you know, he, he was being facetious, but he said, you know, Eve, you don't really have to litigate against women or even you know, design a society um, with laws to hold women back, all you have to do is require that kids come home for lunch. And I found that so important because what he was talking about was some of the Southern Germany policies around Munich areas where kids are required to come home for lunch and they watch labor force participation rates drop compared to places where obviously kids are in school a full day. Mm -hmm. And so we just basically had an entire global experiment of requiring kids to come home for lunch. And we watched what happened to women, the burnout, the labor force participation rates. And so what, why I think that's important is because, um, you know, gender division of labor researchers, like what I'm, I've become, we're like the canary in the coal mine. I mean, we sort of knew, we could have, we predicted COVID before COVID yeah, yeah. because we, we, we were watching <clears throat> the levels of burnout, um, that were being reported amongst women. Yeah, and I mean, I would just say that the the project that I was working on all those years, COVID hit in the last year of the thing. And basically one, one stream for me was the experience with my grandchildren and how it differed from my experience with my own children when I was more in a striving mode mm -hmm. and less, and in my journey away from, you know, <laughs> asshole by divine right to what they call, what they say in Italian, marriageable material. <laughs> they have this little phrase. <laughs> so I, I'd be deemed that now at this end of the thing. Um, 
and but then but then the COVID thing hit, and it was weird because it was basically like I'd been writing something in theory, and now everybody had to go home and do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, okay, now, uh, you know, and so with the result being that there's a lot of guys like my son, John, for instance, whose wife, Becky, has had a career because I and Jeannie have been doing childcare. She, I mean, she would have found some other way to do it. But you know what I'm saying? We played a part yeah, in her career. Yeah, of course. And in his, okay, he's negotiated a deal with his company saying, I'm only coming in for a day a week or find somebody else because Amazing. I've been working from home. And because I'm in, enjoying being with my kids more, plus it's fairer to Becky and yeah. You know, so on yeah. and so on. In other words, he's the thing. Now, my daughter, who's a CEO of, of a venture capital company in New York and and had her kids in Finland, where wow. paid parental leave was for a year. And then and she dropped out of NYU and got married very young. And she's happily married to a Finnish composer and, and musician. Oh. And um, they're back in the States now. She has a great story about becoming a CEO, but two things that she's contributed to me. One saying until COVID, everybody was hiding their families, pretending we didn't have families. Because if you wanted to be taken seriously in business, you didn't say I'm doing a school pickup or I'm going, you know, you said I'm going to the office. Yep. Yep. Because it's a liability, but men suffer from the same thing. Even when they do have paternity leave, sometimes they don't take it. They think their career will suffer. And that's where I think the whole thing's crazy. Well, I think that's the absolute, the number one point is to recognize that um, this is, for me, writing about the gender division of labor was never to call out individual men to say, you know, you suck, right? It was never that, because the truth is they, most men don't, most men want to have in my studies, at least now, you know, thousands of people that I've interviewed, most men, um, the majority of men want, tell me they wanna be meaningfully engaged in their children's lives. And, but that they are afraid that when they do things sure. that are reserved for women, like take their paternity leave in toxic cultures, like you said, that they will be penalized mm-hmm. um, and nobody wants to be penalized. And so I get it, I get that. And they, there's a new article that just said, men are going back to work you know, in droves. They're the ones showing up at the office, of course, because people do want to get ahead. And I don't fault anybody for for trying to uh, work in, in, in a messed up system. But I think yeah, that's yeah. The, the point of starting for me with the individual, Frank, was understanding that it was never going to stop there. It was making the vis- invisible visible, but then saying we're going to fight at the corporate level for a fair, I call it fair pay, fair day, fair play. Yeah. Where you could, that means you get fair pay because there's no motherhood penalty. The fair day is what your son John did, being able to work flexibly. Fair play is men parenting out loud, like you said, what your daughter said. We're not hiding our families anymore. To me, those those are the important pieces to move forward um, post COVID. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm hoping sometime you get time to to um, take a look at this new book of mine that just came out a couple of weeks ago because. You know, in a way, I ordered, I'm terrified. It. I ordered it. Yeah, I'm terrified to have you read it in one way because you actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> You've done all these interviews, but I think you'll find that I bear out what I'm saying. It's a little more of a personal story in some ways, although, you know, there's a lot of you in this book too um, uh, that comes out. But I think where you're going to find, um, I take a slightly different approach. I don't mean that disagrees with your book, but a different angle is just to question the whole system, as in, why are we? Why did we ever think it was a good idea to define ourselves by career instead of the quality of our relationships, right. which is what careers are about? 
Careers aren't about careers. Careers are about the quality of the relationship that they pay for and provide. Otherwise, why bother? Nobody sits around saying, oh, you know, and, and my idea was just, okay, um, how do we define success? If we define success by the quality of our most personal relationships, then of course I do the dishes for my wife every morning because it makes right. her happy to see a clean kitchen. A hundred percent. If you define your life by where your standing is in a company or your job title or how much you earn, you have a whole different path before you. And the sad thing is, I think it's one even for men that's filled with regret because in the end, uh, and I know this sounds a little oppressive and maudlin, but the way I kind of put it is that you have, you, you, you have to choose which mirror to look in. And if you look in the mirror of career, the size of your paycheck, the way you reference yourself in terms of your profession, um, you're standing in a company, that's one mirror and it'll give you a whole set of results. But if you want the real picture of yourself, it's, it's only seen in, the, in, in what you see reflected in the eyes of the people who know you and love you. 100%. And that's the deal. And so the funny thing is we both get to the same place because if you define success the way I'm talking about there, then you will do all this for people you love. It has nothing to do with, um, and I like the fact that you've broken it down into these, these hundred cards because that gives people an opportunity of like, okay, uh, how do we get going on this? And whether they wind up doing it exactly the way you say or not isn't the point. It's not your point either. It's to get yeah. people thinking in a different way. And I love yeah. that about your book. Well, I think the flexibility is really important. You know, I think it's never been a literal system to say you have to do anything the way I tell you to do it. It's just, as you were saying earlier, it's, it's about questioning the assumptions for why we do things the way we do, because right. I don't think as a society, we've been really good about asking the why questions. I think mm -hmm. we ask a lot of the what questions. I think we put a lot of lists in front of each other, um, go to the store to go buy the, you know, the yellow mustard. Why are you so stupid, Frank, that you came home with the spicy Dijon mustard? Or the blue, right? are you in tears yeah, over the blueberries? Right. The blueberries, right? I mean, I think that's the problem. The home is really dangerous because it presents so small. So we genuinely think we're having fights or conversations around blueberries or what mustard you brought home, but mm -hmm. it's not that at all. And I think the looking, taking it and, and taking a step back and saying, what, as you say, what is the life that you want to be defined by? What is your active legacy? Um, I don't think there's any more important question. I think that's, that is the question. You know, yeah. that's it. And that's what your book's about. And, I, and I, what I like about your book is that it won't get you all the way there because nothing will in one book, but it's, oh. it's a great how-to in that. What I love about your book is it says something very clearly. Look, this is possible. And here's how you can start. And I love that. And I think, you know, I, I, I hope that your book is embraced by men wise enough to understand, that, you know, they're not going to have a very good answer for this question. Well, how's it all working out for you? Mm -hmm. It's not working out well for men at all. And, and, and it's not working out that great for women, but I don't see it as, as some, some conspiracy by no. males no. across the no. globe. To no. I see it as something we have been handed and we get from our nursery school on, you know, work hard so you can get into a good high school, so you can get into a good college, so you can get a good job, so you can be there in the career, so you can have your thing. And when do we stop and tell people, hey, um, 
there's other things in life. And the only reason any of this makes sense is not it. It's because of this other stuff. Now, how are you going to fit all that together? Well, I think for me, what you're saying resonates because at the end of the day, we are so much more than our milestones and our, our culture has made milestones, the markers of a successful life. And to me that at the end of the day, fundamentally, that has been, um, why there's, I think there's such a disconnect between happiness and meaning and what the lives that we live in America, especially. Yeah. I have been enjoying this conversation to the point where I've forgotten to do all the stuff that Ernie, my wonderful producer tells me to do, which is to say things like you've been, you are listening to in conversation with Frank Schaefer and today Eve Rodsky is my wonderful guest and she's written a terrific book called Fair Play. And if you like this uh, podcast, please subscribe to it and share it and and promote it and go to our, our website, blah, 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 blah. I have a new book coming out, et cetera, et cetera. But I've forgotten all that. I was supposed to stop once or twice and do that stuff. So sorry, Ernie, but then don't get me such good guests. <laughs> well, I yes, I, I can't believe we've already been together for an hour. But I do think that um, I was happy we got introduced because, again, I, I love not only did I love knowing that you're um, actively supporting the career of your son and daughter-in-law through taking an active role in the caregiving of your grandchildren. But I think um, this most recent book of yours is the, it's the same message. It's the same. I think it is too. And I'm anxious to have you read it because the thing is what I'd like to do, I've built a sort of a relationship with Aaron Bagwell and some other who did this wonderful film on postpartum called year one, which by the way, it's on everything. And I interviewed it the other day at, I've got a lot of interviews with a lot of wonderful women, you know, Felicia Davis of the Chicago Women's Foundation, Jose, who you know, and many, many other people on this topic, trying to look at it, you know, what are different roads into this that we can really change something? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think for the younger audience, the approach that I'm taking in the book, which I will mention now because it's the end of the program, and uh, it is... um, uh, come, it's it's out, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. The point I make when I say fall in love, it's not only romantic love, it's falling in love with the idea that love is the thing around which your whole life will revolve for better or worse. Okay, so it's falling in love with love itself. Have okay. children, this program, um, you have been my child, Eve, because I am your parent for a few minutes I am caregiving you because I love your book and you've brought this book. It's already successful. It doesn't need me, but you bring this book. Hi, mom. Look, I drew this picture and I'm saying, that's terrific. Let's put it on the the refrigerator with a magnet. That's what parenting is. Parenting is opening doors for people. So this is a caregiving operation right here now. It has nothing to do with whether you have children or not. It's whether everyone is your child. My son, Francis, who's 50, is a teacher, has been high school teacher for years, Um, he has no kids. He's not going to have any kids. He doesn't want any kids. And yet he has more children than I will ever have. And parents come up with tears in their eyes, talking about the door that he opened for their daughter or their son, and that he didn't just do math tutoring on the weekend for them for free. He cooked them lunch first. So they'd be fed. That's, that's having children stay put, uh, rather than roving around, always looking for the best deal. How about stay put for a minute and be with the people who can provide community and save the planet as a result, because 
you know, it's not the breastfeeding mother on the beach who is ruining the planet. It's the five idiots on jet skis roaring past her in the water, you know, on useless appliances that are burning up the atmosphere made by businesses that don't give a crap about us. And the be happy part, I guess, is the wrong wording. I should say find joy because mm -hmm. there's not always happiness in these things. So you and I are, are on the same path. And I would simply wind up by saying, um, if you have projects in future, like you talked about Feldman, where you think I should be talking to someone about what they're doing. I already quote her at length in my book, but let's say I hadn't known about her or in her case, I wouldn't know how to get to her. Please double back. You have Ernie, my producer's email, you have yes. mine. Yes. And help us reach people who otherwise would be, what are we talking to this old idiot for? Wasn't he in some crazy evangelical or something? And you need to let folks know about the project, but also just that, Maybe the perspective of some old guy, you know, with less ahead than behind, but who's put his money where his mouth is on these issues, bring something to the table that can help. Because I want to talk to men and say, you guys are idiots. You're throwing out, you know, you're, you're, you're eating the wrapper and throwing out the candy. You're going to regret this. That's also an argument. And, and I, I make it pretty forcefully. And I want a chance to talk to more people about that. Well, again, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciated the, the depth of this conversation. It definitely was different than any other conversation I've ever had. So that's a testament to you as an interviewer. So I want well, to- Well, you're a lovely person. And seriously, I, I just, um, you know, you're somebody I'm going to be following very closely from here on out. I, I think you're just wonderful. Uh, right. And I love the tone you bring to it. And Speaking from a male perspective, having read the book and now talked to you, you know, if there's some man punting around out there saying, what's yes. this got to do with men? They're, they're just idiots. I'm sorry. I apologize on behalf of the, the idiot that I used to be. Here's the book. Okay, fair play. It seems everybody's already bought this, but if there's three of you out there yet that haven't bought it, please buy this book. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. Thank you so much. Um, I will... Hopefully see you um, and I will I will make sure that Ernie gets with Feldman's information, please, because so I important. Will. I really want to explore that with her. And and uh, you're in you're in L.A. now or somewhere. Yeah, yeah I'm in L.A., um, but anybody can find me on Instagram or Twitter, but I'm just Good. Brodsky. They can find me. And yeah, uh, no, they'll find you. Yeah. And and we're going to link to everything. So we don't right. even need, I mean, every your book and you and whatever you want to do, Ernie, will get it all from you if you just stay on a second. Uh, and we'll link Great. to anything you want to have promoted. Perfect. Well, thank Much you. Much love, Eve. Thank you for a wonderful book. Bye. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.